Well, good morning to you. Um, it is good to be with you today. Who's been to Panera Bread before? They're going to owe me a shout out after this. I should get a free sandwich or something. Um, best sandwich at Panera, what is it? Okay, there's only one answer. It's called the Bacon Turkey Bravo, right? Like they did a new menu, and it's like the only sandwich that they actually kept from the last menu. Why? Because it's the best. Um, there's only one problem with the Bacon Turkey Bravo. Uh, the problem with the Bacon Turkey Bravo is that I always have to order additional sauce. Um, they have something called Bravo sauce, so I always have to add Bravo sauce to make it really exceptional, to make it special. Um, and so as a result, that's what I end up doing every time. And so I always add some additional sauce. So here's the struggle. I'm telling you that because here's the struggle that we have with faith. Is sometimes we believe that faith is simply an add-on. We think faith is something that, oh, if I can just get a little bit more of that. And even as we jump into the passage today, Exodus chapter 13, Exodus chapter 14. So we're going to be walking through, running through those two chapters. But one of the struggles that we truly have with faith, and in even understanding some things today, is that we treat faith as though it's simply an add-on, rather than being the entirety of what our life should be revolving around. And so that's a struggle that we have, is that we think that faith is an add-on, and so that when it's just an add-on, it's just an additional flavor rather than actually being the main course of our life. And it's something that we always struggle with. But what you're going to see today is in Exodus chapter 13 and Exodus chapter 14, I'll go ahead and tell you in these first five minutes, I'm going to give you some references also to some New Testament passages so you see the importance of what's happening. Why? Because we know that the deliverance of the people of Israel runs parallel to the fact that Jesus Christ set the people free as being the perfect Lamb of God. We spoke about that a good bit last week. That theme continues, but I want to make sure that we're understanding fully that, wait a second, wow, this is all running parallel. Something that happened 3,500 years ago nearly is running parallel to something that happened 15, 1,600 years later, and that of the giving of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. So we see that God ends up by delivering the Israelites from Egypt, they had been there in slavery and in captivity, he emancipated them. He, he set them free. That's what that means. He set them free from the hand of Egypt. And so we already are reminded of Romans 6.22. Romans 6.22 says, but now that you have been set free from sin, now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. So we're being reminded of what Christ did for us in Romans chapter 6, but also we're being reminded in Exodus chapter 13 exactly what God was doing for the people of God, for the Israelites. He was setting them free. He was letting them know, listen, I, I want all of you, I want the very best of you because I have set you free from sin. Why? Because we know that we've all been born into sin. We also know that we are a slave to sin. 
We're all, guys, we're all slave to something, and so we need to then ask ourselves, what are we actually slave to? Some people may be slave to work, and they just work, 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 work. They want to make sure that they have everything done that needs to be done so that they can forward and move themselves in advancement through the ranks, whatever that might look like for them. Other people are not slave to work, but they're, maybe you're slave to the opinion of others. You don't sleep at night because you're so concerned about what someone else will say about you tomorrow. And you're slave to others. We're all slave to something. Some are slave to money. Some are a slave to habits that become routine and that consume your time and your energy. We're all slave to something. And what we find here in Exodus chapter four, uh, 13 is that the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all of the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And God very quickly was jumping into the picture and he was letting them know that I want your very best because I have freed you from sin. I, want, I, I, I demand your very best. God declared that his right of ownership over the firstborn males of Israel, both human and animal. Now this is important. God declared his right of ownership. We're going to see this as a theme. Now this is important because of the following. If God is declaring his right of ownership over all of those whom he has set free from their own sin, he is letting them know that I own you. Now that's a hard thing for us to be able to process in, in, in a world in which we live, but God is our owner. I belong as a believer in Jesus Christ. I belong to God. He is my owner. He is the one who determines who I am. He is the one that I submit to. He is the one that I listen to and obey. I am not my own. I belong to God. And God deserves that very thing. And so he's stepping in, even in Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 2. I told you several passages in the New Testament. Here's another one. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. I want to read this for you because here what we find is this is after the birth of Jesus Christ. The shepherds and the angels come. And then all of a sudden what we find is that Jesus is being presented in the temple. And this is what it says. And when the time came... For their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So we see this happening in Exodus chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, the consecration of the firstborn. We see it happen in the life of Jesus Christ, again, in Luke chapter 2, 22 and 23. But this is something that happened. That was happening uh, 1,500 years later as a fulfillment of the word of God and the law of Moses. Also, what we find here in Exodus chapter 13, it speaks about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Exodus chapter 13, verse 3 and following. It says, then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you 
out from this place. From a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of, out of slavery, out of captivity. Now, this is interesting to me because another passage I, I want you to write down is John chapter 8, 31 through 38. John chapter 8, 31 through 38. It's an amazing passage because it talks about how the truth will set you free. Now, it says that Jesus said to the Jews. Now, listen to this. It said, Jesus said to the who? Jews. The people that God delivered out of captivity in Egypt were what? Jews. Israelites. So here's Jesus. It doesn't say he's speaking to Gentiles or anything else. He said, here he is. Jesus is now speaking to the Jews who had believed him. And it says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Had they forgotten what happened to them in Egypt? The Jews are literally speaking up to Jesus and saying, whoa, 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 set free. We've never been slaved to anyone. Had they truly, remember Passover is something that they were celebrating Still celebrate, the Jews do, every single year. Some of, let me go ahead and throw this in. Um, some people go, why aren't we still celebrating Passover as a Christian then? Because we are also told in the New Testament that, and, and it's not wrong, it's something that maybe you go through a Seder service or something like that. It's a powerful thing to be able to do, to remember that which you have been delivered from. But we also know in the New Testament that we have already had that done for us in the giving of Jesus Christ. But what we see here is that all of a sudden, the Jews call out, we've never been slaves. So you think, well, maybe they're just speaking about themselves of that day. Well, they were subjects of Rome during that day. There are certain things that they must do according to Rome. So even then, I would argue that in some ways they were submissive to others. And now they're calling out and saying, we've never been slaves to anyone. Here's one of the problems that we're going to see, one of the struggles that we see in Exodus chapter 13, but especially 14, when we get to that in a second, is the following, is that the people had forgotten what they had been delivered from and thus no longer recognized what they were held captive to. This is big. Because when you look at this, the people had forgotten what they were delivered from and no longer recognized what they, had, they were held captive to. And sometimes we forget what we have been delivered from. That we have been brought out of captivity, out of slavery, because we are all slaves to something. We are all slaves to sin when we were born until we surrender to Jesus Christ ourselves. And so we recognize this as believers, as people who believe in the authority of the word of God. But the people, even in John chapter 8, 31 through 38, they had already forgotten what they had been delivered from. And thus they no longer recognized what they were held captive to. Possibly because they felt that their faith was an add-on. 
And so they had forgotten all that God had done for them. What we also see in Exodus chapter 13 is the following. Now, let me go ahead and tell you. Exodus chapter 12, uh, this was from last week. Exodus chapter 12, uh, 43 through 49. If you look back at that, what that is is giving the rules uh, for the annual remembrance of eating the Passover lamb. We know that they would eat the Passover lamb. They would go make sure that it was without any type of, of fault or blemish, and they would then eat it. They would discard anything that they did not eat. They would get rid of it. We know that that's there in Exodus 12, 43 through 49. But in Exodus 13, 3 through 10, we find the rules for the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. It's combined into an eight-day festival called Passover. And the command is to eat nothing with leaven in it. Leaven or yeast, right? Spoke about it a week ago, being that very thing that would allow something to be puffed up. Leaven is a common biblical symbol for sin. And so they would eat nothing with leaven in it. The idea is to search one's heart for sin, to explore the very thing that maybe you are actually held captive to, that you are slave to. And you go, well, maybe it's being known by others, right? I talked about money before. I talked about the job or others' opinions. We're all held slave to something. And all of a sudden what we find is we need to search our own heart for the very thing that we're actually held slave to. It reminds me of uh, Psalm 139, 23 through 24. And I hope that what you're understanding is how all of the Word of God works together. I hope you're seeing that. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Search my heart, O God. Allow me to know my heart, to know what I'm actually held captive to. And so, again, what we find in this passage of Exodus chapter 13, 3 through 10, are these rules to search our own heart, to know what God has done for us. It's an amazing thing to do, uh, to be able to see in verse 7, it says, Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Now that's speaking about, by the way, the very thing that's in between their eyes. That's uh, For Jews, that would be something called a phylactery. There are four primary passages that Jews would want to make sure that they would remember during this time. And so maybe you've seen that there would typically be a small leather box that would be placed on a Jewish man's head. And within that box would be four primary texts that they would have to make sure, and and really they're fundamental truths of Judaism. Um, Exodus 13, 1 through 6 would be there. Exodus 13, 11 through 16. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And also Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 21. 
And so this is referring to that, and that's why you see these individuals, and they go, well, we're going to put them right here, these passages that are fundamental to our faith, so that we will be reminded of them. Verse 9 is a powerful verse. It's a significant verse for them. It says, when the Lord, in verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it up to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, it, you shall break its neck. And it just keeps giving these instructions for them to know exactly what they are to be doing. The consecration of the firstborn male humans and animals parallels to God's killing of the firstborn in Egypt. The laws of sanctifying the firstborn... Please hear this. The laws of sanctifying the firstborn teach the powerful lesson of sacrifice. I just spoke about this journey of transformation. And one of the parts of a journey of transformation of being used by God is sacrifice. I do believe in the video you watched before. I believe that sacrifice is the hardest thing for us to grasp. That God actually wants us to sacrifice. But the struggle that we have with it is that we believe that God is here to come and to give to us. Rather than for us to have any role in sacrificing at all. That's a struggle for us. Many people don't believe because of that very thing. I'm telling you right now that if it was simply a matter of going, God died for you, God loved you, gave his son obviously to die for you, and so as a result, you don't have to do anything to live any life you want. Everybody would believe. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. We know says that uh, as you look at this passage, verse 15 and 16, says, When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, Or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Although that was near. For God said, let the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, alright, so maybe you're new here and you, you didn't listen to the... The sermons of Exodus prior, you need to know this, um, that the people of God, the Israelites, had been held captive, right? As I mentioned previously, they had been held captive. And now what we see happening is God, after how many plagues? Ten. How many plagues? Ten. He is now, he's given, what he's been doing, guys, he's been given Pharaoh and Egypt every opportunity to join in the movement of God, but they continually refuse. I'll speak about that more later, but that's what's been taking place, and they keep saying, no, 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 and we know that Pharaoh's heart was continually hardened or heavy. He, he wanted what he wanted for self. He did not want to submit or acknowledge that there could be a God greater 
than one of his deities because we know that in Egypt they had gods for absolutely everything. And he didn't want to acknowledge that there could be a one true God that would be greater, even though he saw time and time again his gods being destroyed, his gods being humiliated by the one true God through the plagues. And finally, after Passover, the last plague, and that's the death of the firstborn, for anybody who did not take the blood of a Passover lamb and put it on their doorpost... He finally said, fine, just go away. Remember, it says that the entire people of Egypt cried out. And so as a result of that, Pharaoh says, fine, go away, get out of here. Well, it wasn't that easy, though, for the Israelites to leave because the Egyptians had fortified all the roads heading out. Even for some, they would encounter, if they went in some directions, they know that they would encounter the Philistines. The Philistines were warriors. They were fighters. The Israelites were not. Not in the least. They were ex-slaves, not warriors. And the Lord had taken them out of Egypt, but it would take a while to get Egypt out of them, though. Maybe you've heard that before. You can, take the, you can take the girl out of the south, but you can't take the south out of the girl. Right? The other day, my wife actually said, all y'all. And I knew in that moment, the south was still in her. It's that type of mentality with the Egyptians as well, though, and with the Israelites. Because the Israelites, you could take them out of Egypt, but after hundreds and hundreds of years, it was hard to take Egypt out of them. And they were so accustomed to slavery that they sometimes continually rejected the freedom that God offered. We're no different today. We're no different today. And sometimes struggling to move beyond being accustomed to living in our sin so that we can imagine something greater. You're going to see this over and over again. It speaks about the pillars of cloud and fire in 17 and following in Exodus chapter 13. It speaks about the Red Sea. Or the Sea of, of Reeds is another accurate name. Know this, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 14, you're going to see them being delivered and going through the sea. Um, there are parts of the sea here that you're looking at probably a solid 100 miles wide. Now, in the northeastern part of the sea, you do have various lakes, etc., that are there as well, in addition to the large lake. But you're looking at 100 miles or more that they were having to travel through. This is something that they obviously didn't do overnight. Like It was a journey. It took a while, but God delivered. You're going to see how all of that plays a role. We also know that we find that in verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped 
in that region. And you look at this, Sukkot is important for us to see and to know about. It means booths, Sukkot. That'd be the proper pronunciation. And you look at it, it's the booths. It's the same word for the final feast of the Lord. So God is reminding them of all that he was doing for them. God is reminding them of how much he has already done for them. And yet what we're about to see, even though the fire is reminding them of his presence, they're about to immediately reject that, of, that, that very thing that God is wanting to do for them. Listen to this. It says um, in Exodus 13, 21 and 22, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the, before the people. Now, fire was in the cloud. That's what this is meaning. There was fire in the cloud. By day, it simply could not be seen. Fire is a common biblical picture of God's presence. Um, think back to Exodus chapter 3 with Moses and the burning bush. The cloud protected them from the fierce, hot desert sun in the day. That's what the cloud would do. And by night, the fire and the cloud kept them warm because in the desert, we know that the temperatures were extreme. God was reminding the people, I'm here for you. I'm not going to step away from you. I got you. And then we come to the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, when we get to the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14, it's interesting because it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp. To encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the, and the sea, in front of Bel Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. The people of God are trying to get out of Egypt, and yet they're scared to get out of Egypt. Pharaoh had given permission for Moses to take them into the desert to leave. But God is about to reveal that his plans are bigger than setting the Israelites free. God was about to display his glory in even greater ways. Because what we find is once again in verse 4, it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. There it is again. We see that as a continual theme. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And I will get glory. Now get glory. You're going to see this numerous times in speaking about God. God is going, he keeps talking about, he will receive glory. He will receive honor. Several times just in Exodus chapter 14. Know this, no matter your response, God will get the glory he deserves. He will. This is, this is one place that we find in Exodus chapter 14. And, and it tells us that he's going to get his glory. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This is interesting because even in verse 6, it then jumps in and it says, Because his heart was hardened, it says, The mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed 
toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? They had free labor. They let him go because he was so intimidated by the one true God, but he kept coming back because he couldn't imagine losing what he was actually giving up. And so now he's calling out and saying, what just happened? You see, that's what a hardened heart does. I I asked several weeks ago, do you have a hard heart? And a hardened heart is important to think about. A hardened heart will impact the thinking and understanding of the mind. If you have a hard heart, you will naturally think differently. You will have a different understanding about life and the different aspects of life. I think maybe that's why I even asked the question here, what most influences your heart and your mind? Because you're about to see fear impacting the hearts and the minds of the Israelites more than anything else. They had a, they had a heart that was easily manipulated. They had a heart that was easy to be given to fear, to intimidation. So that's how we come to Exodus 14, 10 through 12. It says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. So, make sure you know what's happening here. Verse 8, The Lord hardened, his heart of, hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So then he ends up telling us that he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were giving out or going out defiantly the Egyptians pursued them all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea now they knew they, they were going to be, they just went by the sea. They just went to a place where they knew that they could possibly be trapped. Yet they still go because God had instructed Moses to take them to that very place. And so they were still, of course, Moses is trying to be obedient to God. And so he takes them to this very place. And then it tells us that Pharaoh coming after them because he said with a hard heart, what have we done to let these people go? He comes and he starts going after them. And the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? That's called sarcasm. Because we know that Egypt was full of nothing. It really, it, it worshipped, their gods were often about death. That's what the temples are, giant tombs. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Guys, they leave. They know that after all of these plagues that have happened, and they saw God acting over and over and over and over again, they leave. They finally get out of Egypt the Egyptian army starts coming after them, and their first response is, let's get ready, is not, let's get ready, let's be prepared to fight. Or what is God wanting from us? None of that. It simply says that they were now fearful. 
They couldn't believe what was happening. And so they immediately began to question God. At the first sign of difficulty, their first response is questioning God. Are we any different today? Um, there was a guy, a uh, theologian decades ago, C.H. McIntosh. I was reading some things that he said, and it reminded me of a saying um, that we can forget 1,000 mercies when faced with one moment of strife and hardship. We can forget a thousand mercies when facing a single moment of strife and hardship. God can provide, God can give over and over. We can even recognize how God has blessed over and over. And we're like, wow, this is amazing. Look at how God is blessing. Look at what God is doing in my life. And then with one moment of strife, with one moment of hardship, we can forget all of the mercies of God. We can do that as a church. We can do that as individuals. We look at how God blesses. And then one thing happens and we go, wait a second, this isn't fair. And that's why the people said to Moses, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So Pharaoh and the Egyptians begin to pursue the Israelites and their response is they melt in fear. I mean, already, the, the, the irony is that the Israelites had literally left a graveyard, being Egypt, in order to go find life, a full life with God. And their first response is to want to run back to the graveyard. Are we any different? Verse 13 and 14 of Exodus chapter 14 says, And Moses said to the people, I love this passage, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Do you believe that the Lord will fight for you? You have only to be silent. And to know that he is with you, to know that he will not forsake you. Verse 17 and 18, as I speed up here and... Um, it tells us in verse 17 and 18, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, 
and I will get glory, there it is again, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. You're about to see what I deserve, says the Lord. And I deserve all glory and honor, and I will receive all glory and honor. I will get glory. And so very quickly, we find that Moses stretched out his hand, verse 21, over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. The Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And if the Lord is fighting for you, the enemy has no chance. We know in verse, these verses that it talks about how even the chariots, they couldn't move forward. They couldn't see all that was needing to happen. The land became dry enough to walk on, but it was so muddy that even the chariot wheels got stuck. As you continue in this passage, it says, The waters returned and covered the chariots of the horsemen. And all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. The, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. And thus... The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Long story short, the people of God ended up seeing the power of God. Israel saw the power of the Lord. And maybe that's the best question that we need to even ask ourselves today is are we, have we experienced the power of the Lord in our own life? Do you recognize the mercies of the Lord or have you allowed just one difficulty to allow you to forget the workings of God in your own life? Have you experienced the power of the Lord in your life? And if so, who are you sharing that with? I think when I uh, look at this story and I, I think about all that God is doing, I think I'm, I actually get a little just, I'm just sad and disappointed. Because the people of God 
struggled in their life to ever trust God. And they just wanted more from God. They wanted everything. They didn't want any difficulty at all. They just wanted everything to be given to them. But they didn't want to actually have to trust. You know that if you trust by the way you respond to difficulty. In the darkest of days when things are most difficult is when you discover and learn of your actual trust in God. And here they are very quickly, they just, as soon as they, they could see the dirt maybe with the horses and the chariots and they, and they look out in the distance and they see that they're coming and they begin to panic. Even though they were about to see the majesty of God. The glory of God. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the Lord? God, may we trust you more. No matter what's going on in life, may we trust you more. May we personally not allow one hardship, one difficulty to allow us to forget the thousand mercies that you have shown to us. You are a faithful God, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.